Hello, welcome to Don't Call Me Exotic. I'm O-N-E-O. I'm a DJ radio presenter and promoter. This is the podcast where I invite people in the creative field to come talk to me about diversity, culture, personal experiences of racism both in life and in their careers. I'd like to welcome my next guest, the editor-in-chief of Galdem, which is an online and print magazine committed to sharing perspectives of people of color from marginalized genders, Su Yin Haynes. Hi, Suyin. Hi, Annie. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. And yeah, I was looking up like everything you've been doing and it's so inspirational. And you're my first journalist on the pod. Oh, the pressure. <laughs> and I hit the jackpot. <laughs> oh, that's very kind. No, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And um, it's just a pleasure to be here. Yeah. We only just saw each other last week. I know, this well. is lovely. I know. Um, I was wondering if you could introduce yourself and how you got into journalism. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, in a in a nutshell, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, hi, Annie's lovely listeners, um, lovely listeners of Don't Call Me Exotic. Um, I'm Cian, and I'm the editor in chief at Galdem. Hey. So, <laughs> um, we are a new media outlet dedicated to sharing the perspectives of people of colour from marginalised genders. Um, and I've been in that post since July 2021, so seven months now. It's gone, I can't believe how quick it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> Before that, I was a reporter at Time magazine for five years. Um, I was in London and then in Hong Kong for two years and then back in London again. So, yeah, I mean, amazing sort of journey there. But I first got into journalism really actually through Galdem in sort of 2015, 2016, when it first set up and I was in my final year at uni. And I saw, you know, just on Facebook and through friends, there was this really cool collective of young women who were kind of making this space for women and non-binary yeah. people of colour and, you know, creating this new media project. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. I want to get involved. So, you know, reached out through Facebook. It was so informal and so such you know, scrappy startup energy yeah. in those days. And uh, became a, a copy editor and a sub-editor um, for Galdem in my final year. And that was really just my introduction to the world of journalism yeah. and thinking that it could be something for me. Right. I hadn't really thought about it as a career before then. Yeah. But I learned so much from our founder, Liv, and, and Charlie, who was my predecessor um, as editor-in-chief. And, yeah, I mean, it was it was brilliant. And I think that really gave me a start and gave me an introduction to you know storytelling mm. and the kind of storytelling I wanted to do and then uh, this is going to make it sound like it was really easy but it wasn't <laughs> <laughs> you know graduated and, and applied for like a bunch of internships and yeah. things and got a bunch of rejections um and then found this one at, at Time Magazine's London Bureau that sounded a bit too good to be true yeah um you know it's paid you know Amazing. decent way yeah I know. oh my god I know which is you know rare and I think, I think you have to be very you know discerning about which things you apply for because there are so many places that would take advantage of yeah. you know, young free I labor. did free internships for like a year. <laughs> which is, you know... I think it's illegal now, isn't it? I think I think so. I'm not I don't know. sure. Yeah. It should be, oh, in any case. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then and the application, I remember the application was, you know, it was like a paragraph and that was it and oh your CV. God. And I was like, wow, you know, God, this has got to be, you know, very well-written paragraph. <laughs> It's almost more pressure, isn't it, yeah. when it's less words? In a way. But then I was also like, you know, I kind of like that it's sort of judged on, you know, that. And um, and then I think there was a question that was like, if you could only tell one story, you know, or only write one story, what would you do? And I can't even remember what I wrote now. But, mm. um, 
But wow. yeah, then I ended up getting a call back for that and then ended up getting that. And then that was sort of that three month internship then morphed into a job in Hong Kong. Wow. And then, yeah. So, I mean, a mixture of hard work, also good timing and a bit of luck. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. I Like, that's such a right place right time kind of yeah and yeah I remember I was working in I was working in a pub that's opposite my house at the time because I was like shit I need some money for the summer (laughs) (laughs) just graduated like you know and it it was it was it was hard as well because my my grandmother my papa had passed away and my mum had gone back to Malaysia for the funeral and everything in the summer so I was a bit like oh my god you know I've got to find a job and had been really hoping that it come through and then I remember I finished the shift at this pub and and then checked my voicemail and it was um, you know, the hiring editor. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. Oh, my God. I love that. Like, yeah. you always remember those phone calls. Yeah. 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 I remember where I was, like, when I got my first job. And yeah. Yeah. That kind of stays with you, doesn't it? Does. It? it does. It does. Um, yeah. But I do want to talk about your time at time. <laughs> no, pun intended. I think I've heard all the time. We've all heard all the time. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I really Have you got, got some set up? No, no. That was it. That was it. <laughs> Um, what kinds of stories were you reporting on when you were there? Yeah, I mean, so I started, so I started as an intern and was doing such a mixture of things. I remember, I remember there was a story that I did about this Indian um, comic book that was teaching young girls and boys about periods. And wow. like, it was just founded. And I, and then I've just seen the other day that they were on, um, the founder was on the, uh, like Indian version of Dragon's Den, oh my I think. God. Yeah, so you know, seeing some things like that from you know five, six years ago is really cool. But you know, I had always kind of had an interest in gender yeah. stories and yeah. and um, you know, with a human rights focus and underrepresented communities. When I was in Hong Kong, my main role was like audience engagement. So mm. I was kind of thinking about how folks were interacting with our stuff, how we could make our journalism more engaging, how we could, you know, build up our social platforms and social channels, which was really you know fun and, and not something that I'd Im- imagined doing yeah. as a job I didn't even know that really was a job yeah <laughs> and then was doing sort of reporting on the side but I think always having that interest in you know focus on underrepresented communities you know LGBTQ issues women and human rights issues you know I did a story probably one of my favorite assignments was reporting on the Me Too movement across mm, Asia. Yeah. So me and a colleague um, went to Seoul and then did report. She did some reporting with some sources in China, and then we did this kind of survey feature story. And I, I was really proud of that because, you know, I think a lot of sort of Western media outlets had thought of Me Too as, you know, when it started in seventeen, like, oh, this is only something that's coming from Hollywood, and this is yeah. something that's coming from the West. You know, actually, women all across East and Southeast Asia yeah. have been saying these things for a long time, and yeah. and you know, especially in Korea, where you have the movements against spy cam and everything. And oh my huge god, protests, that's so right? fucked up. Yeah, oh I know. My god, um, can you kind of explain what that is for people who don't know? Yes, yes. Yeah. So it's called Molka, right? Oh, in um, in uh, in Korea, and and it's essentially yeah, you know, the illicit undercover filming of women in toilets and you know that footage is disseminated on you know porn Porn websites you know and completely without consent it's um awful and I can't you know I can't remember the statistic and I wish I'd come prepared for that I didn't think we were going to be talking about that of course (laughs) (laughs) um but you know it's awful and it's completely rampant and I remember at the time when we were reporting it was in 20 2018 I think no 2019 
Um, and there were huge protests that year, huge, yeah. huge protests, because you know, people, women had had enough, mm. enough. And, you know, the level of shame that that brought as well, you know, in that kind of cultural context as well, and victim blaming as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, just, it was just awful. But, you know, there was something really heartening about seeing that feminist fight back and that kind of you know that mobilization of women's rights groups as yeah. well and and that kind of community support for did women a, who'd gone through that did a lot of people have to kind of hide their identity when they were doing these protests um yeah i mean if, if you look back at the pictures i think we included one of the pictures in the story there are women who are you know, wearing sunglasses hat like face covering completely well. just because yeah. yeah because the sort of stigma surrounding it even surrounding going to a protest for it is it's a lot it's yeah a lot. So, yeah, I mean, just really drawn to those, you know, telling those sorts of stories. And I felt, you know, Time as a legacy media publication has a history of, of, of being worldwide. I'd, I mean, I'd grown up when I was going back to Malaysia. We used to go back every summer when I was a child because mm. I was born and raised here. But, you know, I'm really grateful to my mum and, and my dad, but my mum for kind of keeping me connected yeah. to the maternal side of the yeah, family. Yeah, of course. We used to go there and, and my my auntie used to have copies of Time and I used to, you know, flick through them and read them and, and for, you know, her, <laughs> it was a way of, like, learning about the world. Yeah. And, you know, I just always thought it has such a big audience. Mm -hmm. There's so much power in this platform. Like, why not try and tell some stories that yeah. know, don't get so much airtime? With that article that you wrote, it included the survivor's story. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm Korean and I hope I'm getting this name right. But when I see it written like in English, I it's, always yeah. feel like I'm going to mess it up. But, oh my gosh. So Jihan. So Jihan. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's annoying because like Su Yun, like how my name is spelled, it's like Y-E-O-N. And it's like, uh, it shouldn't be spelled that way. It's like uh -huh. Yeon anyway. So <laughs> when I see that, I'm like, it throws me off. Anyway. <laughs> um. You know, sadly, her story is not surprising, mm. which is, like, horrible to even say out loud. But the statistic that was written in that article, mm. and it said, you know, and this article was written in 2018. Mm. The statistic from 2014, there was a UN report that showed that South Korea had the third highest rate of female murder victims mm. in mm -hmm. the world. And in 2017... Almost 80% of South Korean men surveyed by the Korean yeah. Institute of Criminology had said that they had physically or psychologically abused a girlfriend. Oh my, like, I can't even, because this is my home country. Mm. This is like my motherland. And that is so horrible to read. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really, you know, it's shocking and, and profoundly moving. And when we spoke to so, and we also spoke to her her lawyer as well in that article. Um, and the lawyer, you know, takes on takes on these cases for survivors. But you know, there's and there's such a strange thing of when you have a survivor speak out, then they are at risk of being sued for defamation. Oh my god! And it's you know, and that same thing happens here in the yeah. UK as well. But yeah, I mean, those statistics are so sobering. And, and apologies, it was in 2018, not 2019. I got my years mixed up. It's okay, <laughs> time is... time is. I know, time the last few years. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, it just it's just as appalling. And so I think it's really important to have her voice as a really central character yeah. in the story. Because, How brave was she? My God. Yeah, and she, there had been a lot of coverage in the media and career of her, but not so much outside outside mm. I think 
and yeah, I mean, it was just a privilege. It was just a privilege to speak speak with her, and she had been like, "You need to come around to my house, and we can make kimchi jjigae." Oh my god, that's like, my favorite food. I know. I was like, oh, I wish we had enough time. <laughs> um, were you in Hong Kong during this time? Yes. So this yeah. was while I was yeah I was in Hong Kong from 2017 to early 2019. So I actually left and came back here just before the protests. Yeah. Um, you know that summer of protests that were really intense um after the the 2014 umbrella revolution yeah so i mean mean, like how did you feel as a biracial woman in hong kong yeah during like covering these stories like how did how did you get through it yeah i mean this is such a a big question and i would say you know i wasn't covering the hong kong hong kong stories so much and, and and those protests really sort of kicked off after i'd left but definitely that feeling of reconciling identity and place was something that I've thought about so much. Yeah. You know, I'd never even been to Hong Kong before. And my editor at the time had been like, you know, had you ever thought about it? He was like, oh, I know your mum's Asian. And I was like, mm, okay, not the same country. But, you know, <laughs> you know like, lump us all together. Yeah, That's exactly. Cool. <laughs> exactly. Um, so in a way, you know, that's like, you know, a certain level of privilege that I was afforded, you know, to be able to do that because... There is like a culture changing now, thankfully, but there is certainly a culture of like foreign chorus, foreign correspondents being from US, UK, going to like, you know, yeah. different countries like Hong Kong yeah. and thinking they're experts on the culture and the society. And it's kind of from a very, you know, the journalism is written from a white Western gaze. And so for me, there's a lot to think about, like moving through that, through that space and trying to, you know, feel connected to the city and and feel like respectful but there's this you know, very strange stuff you'll hear all the time when people have whenever people say stuff about hong they're like hong kong they're like oh there's a really you know there's a real expat community there there's a real expat yeah. bubble yeah and it's like yeah why you know thinking about who we call expats as and well who, who are immigrants and who are immigrants yeah. you know and um that bubble is very real very very privileged and Mm -hmm. and, um yeah I made some amazing amazing friends there and it'll be really strange sort of seeing you know footage or stories from the protests from like some people that I followed on Instagram and then like a bottomless brunch right (laughs) and that's not to drag you know drag people that I follow bottomless brunches brunches. (laughs) but I think it shows you know how um you can disengage yes Yeah. yeah Thinking about, thinking about that. There's so much, so much inequality there as yeah. well. It's it's an amazing place. It's very unusual and strange and and brilliant and beautiful. But um, yeah, and, I, and it's it's changed so. And I, I'm so grateful for the time that I had there. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's a really long. No, it's my answer. I can't remember <laughs> what I asked. <laughs> You've spoken about you know the feeling of being whole. Mm. and your proximity to whiteness Mm. and acknowledging privilege and I've spoken about this on my podcast before Mm -hmm. where like you get those forms and it's like you have to tick what box you are of race oh my god abolish forms abolish boxes oh my god (laughs) but then they only have like four options and then if you're not one of the four Asian countries that they Mm. decide to put on the form you're always other and it's Mm. like I'm an other like to push that idea of otherness is like madness and you're feeling uncertain about fully voicing your identity as Asian can you tell me about like these feelings and how you've overcome them and how do you feel now (laughs) I don't know if I will ever overcome I think it's that is this is like a lifelong 
you know our identities yeah, are always shifting and changing and and you know I know for me there's still so much that I'm you know thinking through and working through and feeling challenged by but in, in a good way yeah I mean talking about forms like I had this <laughs> <laughs> the thing was like um I, I had a really similar you know similar incident with a colleague at my previous job and she was filling out a form on our behalf for a, a team project we'd done and it was like oh what's your ethnicity is it Asian white or other and I was like <laughs> well, I don't really know you know yeah. it's um you know I just don't know I was like I'll just put other I guess yeah I don't know and then I was like actually no can you put Asian but then also that doesn't feel quite right either right. I think those feelings are so complicated and you know, conflicting and I think you know I've always had that kind of hesitancy I think to be I guess fully lean into I'm a person of color and I can speak on all these issues and and things and I, I you know I don't I, I would never claim to speak on or be the representative for a whole community ever I can mm. only speak for myself but um I think I yeah had had a reluctance to sort of speak up about issues of you know like anti-Asian hate or anti-Asian racism and, and not not from a a place of not feeling that pain yeah. but a place of feeling like I need to step back and and let others talk and I think there's still kind of that's still a journey you know still knowing about when to like pass the mic and still knowing about you know still knowing and being cognizant of when someone is much better placed to speak on something than I am which is (laughs) true in a lot of cases (laughs) but I think you know acknowledging that I do also have you know a platform and lived experience and you know the experience of my of my mum and my grandmother and, and my whole maternal family and my parents in navigating like an interracial relationship in the 70s in London when things were, you know, extremely racist. Yeah. And I'm a product of all those things. Yeah. And I think just especially over the last sort of year, year and a half, leaning into that a bit more and mm. feeling a bit more in, empowered and a yeah. bit more able to be vocal about these things. Whereas I, I definitely felt a bit of restraint and maybe uncomfortability before. And I think a big part of that has come from community too. Like, yeah. like yes! <laughs> I was going to say, like, yeah. although, you know, in the past you felt that reluctance, and I think that's you being intuitive and, like, not wanting to overstep, and it's you actually being respectful. But at the same time, like, your perspective is so important. Mm-hmm. And, like, you're not... No, but, yeah. it, it like, you know, as a person who has a mixed family, like, you know, there are others who might feel the same way. So it's just like, it's so important to just keep the conversation going. And like, yeah. I would never assume someone who has a mixed background to be lesser Asian. Yeah. Like, I would never even think that. Yeah. You know, your voice is as valid as mine. Yeah. Thank you. No, that's so, no, I, I really appreciate that. I think it's been hard, you know, to di- you know to balance that not wanting to overstep too much at the same time as as trying to grapple with like the erasure of like you know people being like well you look white so you're not really but then that's like their problem it's not your problem exactly (laughs) um and so I think you know being being older and and, you know having the time to slow down and process and think about these things through the pandemic as well and when I've you know post about it on social and stuff it's been really nice actually to have you know feedback from people who also come from mixed families or you know have also got Malaysian Malaysian heritage or Malaysian mum or father and 
be like, oh yeah, you know, I felt the same and not sure where you fit and that kind of feeling of where do we feel whole? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I even feel, you know, growing up in Canada, I feel very like Westernized. So, you know, when I see, like we were talking about the Me Too movement in South Korea, to me, I'm privileged in the sense that like, I don't have to cover my face if I'm Right. You know, I mean, COVID, yes, yeah, cover my face. Yes. But, but like for identity reasons, I can be vocal and I'm not afraid of like, actually, I'd probably be, I don't want to say applauded, but I would probably, what's another word? You're the journalist. What's the word? No, but I know what you're getting yeah, at. You'd like, probably be like, you know, people will be showing appreciation for you For doing me, that. like using, using, yeah. to do that, right? Right. Yeah. But, you know, maybe I wouldn't even be able to do this podcast if I was... You know, you know, and right. I had a job that wasn't in yeah. entertainment or whatever. Yeah. So it's like I hold privilege in other ways as well. So yeah. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what I'm trying to get at, but no, I just saying you're whole. <laughs> <laughs> we are whole. We're all whole. Um, no, I totally get that. It, it, it's a lot. It's a lot. And I think, you know, we move through this world thinking about so many of these things and yet others do and they don't have to think about these things at all. Mm. And it's it's yeah interesting but yeah this is this is why like everyone's perspectives are so important mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i mean your work at time and galdem as well like that's their whole yeah thing like that's amazing but before we go to galdem <laughs> um i just wanted to go quickly to what you were saying about your mom and her experience and because she was part of the ingat ingat exhibition yes, yes so do you want to just explain yes. what that exhibition was um so Inga Inga was an exhibition as part of um east and southeast asian heritage month which was last september the first ever one i know crazy it was be seen did that yes do, yes did that. launched by the amazing, amazing. ladies of be seen yeah i mean just just brilliant to be part of that experience but Inga Inga was created by Becky Ho Hale whose father Leon is Malaysian Chinese and he came to the UK in the 70s but I can't remember which year but in the 70s to work as a nurse and I think in a a psychiatric nurse I think in Essex but I'm I'm not 100% sure but she basically reached out she did a call out and she was like I'm looking for people whose parents came from the East and Southeast Asia region to work for the NHS, yeah. um, you know, 60s, 70s and 80s. And um, my mum was one of and those people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, she came here in 74. I'm so bad with dates, you know. I think it's 74. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and it, the kind of project was sort of a younger generation interviewing our elders oh. about their experiences. And then we had our photographs taken as well in, in a really lovely setting. Um, and then they were displayed um, as part of the month. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I was talking to Becky the other day, actually, but I really, you know, it would be amazing to kind of build that out into something bigger. Yeah. Because the contribution of people who had come here from EC um, region is mm. massive, massive. Mm. And especially, you know... Even, See, I didn't even know that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like... exactly. I think especially it still continues today in the COVID pandemic with like the disproportionate number of Filipino healthcare workers who have you know sadly passed away and the kind of sacrifices that that people make to come here to contribute Mm. um you know same with Windrush as well from the Caribbean and I think those sorts of contributions are so important of course so important yeah um you had said that you hadn't properly spoken to your mom about her experiences. Yeah. So I was wondering 
what was it like to have that conversation with her about you know racism she's yeah. experienced in the 70s yeah it's not now imagine I know 50 years ago imagine yeah I mean it's really emotional actually because she moved I think she was 20 yeah 21 she would have been 2021 and had never been on a plane before um, and our, fam- our family's from Penang had never been on a plane before and it's quite funny as well because you know I was I was 22 when I moved to Hong Kong and my grandfather was in his early 20s when he migrated from uh, southern China to Malaysia so we kind of have this sort of nomadic trend in our <laughs> down the generations but um, yeah for my mum I mean she had grown up watching films like uh, My Fair Lady and uh, you know Mary Poppins and stuff and had you know had this vision of London as somewhere where I think she said where she thought the streets were paved with gold and she had this these visions of it being super you know just just you know a utopia basically because my my family were pretty poor in Malaysia you know they it was a family my mom's one of seven um my mom's one of seven oh my god (laughs) (laughs) and you know they weren't they weren't well off yeah this was an opportunity for her to go abroad have an adventure learn new skills meet new people and she got that and she said I remember she said she arrived it was April and it was so cold so rainy so depressing she was literally like oh my god what have i done done? oh my god but you know what really struck me you know listening to some of the experience you know the experiences that she had on the ward there were you know people she worked at a hospital in east ham which um no longer exists it was demolished she said that you know some of the people uh patients like didn't want to be uh, tended (gasps) to by her and her cohort and that they would get comments that are like you know, I don't want to repeat on this yeah. podcast in case it's triggering, but they would get, you know, horrible comments. And that was really hard. And also thinking about not having any way to communicate with home, really. They, She had wrote letters to my grandparents, but they couldn't... Uh, but my, like, auntie had to, like, translate them. Oh. So there was no instant communication. Like, yeah. we have the luxury now. But what really struck me was that she... That so a big I think the majority like something like ninety percent of her cohort that were doing the training were from Malaysia, and so they basically formed like mini, little Malaysia oh, in that's their so cute. in their dorm. Yeah, they would do like um have like parties and stuff and like cook Malaysian food yes. like nasi lemak and <laughs> and like chicken curries and stuff together. And and I think that was where she found like her solace and able to sort of get through. And she. She's always cared for other people. She's always, always cared about other people. And I think it must have been a real shock to come here and to have some of those experiences. Oh because gosh, she was so young. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So it was super emotional to, like, revisit. Wow. Those. I'm emotional now. It was oh. emotional to, like, go and revisit those experiences with yeah. her because I think, you know, speaking for myself, I took, took so much for granted, you know, growing up, uh, you know, in, in a Western country. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you have the same yeah, thoughts course. with Canada. Yeah. I think there's so much that's lost about the, the sacrifices that our parents make for yeah. us to be here where we are. And just, you know, revisiting those experiences really brought that home for me. Yeah. But that that's, you know, as much as like we feel that privilege, it's like that's what our parents work so hard yes. for us to have. Yes, yes. So like it's amazing that we're able to acknowledge these things. Yes. But I mean, it works, right? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, you know, she's so... I think it's the same, and, and Becky's father, Leon, because we did this photo shoot all together. And they're very just sort of, uh, like, casual about, you know, kind of stoicism mm. as well. Like, you know, just, you know... Yes, people said 
fucking awful shit to us. Yeah. Um, but we just got on with it yeah. at the end of the day because there's nothing else you could. There was nothing else you could do. Yeah. You couldn't go home. Yeah. There was no. She, my mum didn't have a return flight. Didn't even have enough oh money for God. a return flight. So you know, it just makes you think about. It just really puts stuff into perspective. I think. Yeah, I think. <laughs> so like, my parents are kind of the same way, mm. where they owned a laundromat, and I just be like, "What do people like? Were they rude to you?" And I'm just there like give me some ammo like what did they say and then they're just you know they just got on with it they said the customers were like nice but like they did get some obviously remarks and stuff and they were just like yeah we just get on with it and at the time i'm like how can you just get on with it why don't you start like a podcast or something (laughs) like what but it's like it's it's so different now yeah because we have like options i guess and like i don't know it's before i was like oh it's so weird that you guys never like didn't any push back and it's like for them success and their idea of like the goals that they were aiming for it was just for them to be able to make money feed their kids and like make a better life and it's just like it's totally different now yeah no no for sure thanks mom and dad i know i know (laughs) i know yeah just just yeah we're so indebted to them aren't we moving on to galdam your editor-in-chief i know that's amazing (laughs) Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's uh, it's quite, you know, st- still getting my head around it, I think. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so like, so I'm not a journalist. What does that mean? Okay. <laughs> like, what is your role? Yeah, yeah. So it basically means, so, so I mean, I mean, it's different at every place. At Galdem, we currently have a team of five editors and myself, and I'm just hiring for a, a sixth role now, which is really exciting. Mm. Um. And there's been a lot of interest in it. So it's great to see like how many people want to be part of what we're doing. But as editor-in-chief, you know, I I support my team in projects they want to fulfill. Essentially, you're responsible for the day-to-day output and helping where's needed in day-to-day tasks, but also like our overall editorial strategy, our partnerships, our plans, our, you know, being the kind of voice for editorial in the business, I think. It's quite a yeah, yes. I mean, it's it's a lot of responsibility. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, Galdem's very different in that it's very different to other newsrooms and, and you know, to, to time where I'd worked before because, yes, my title was editor-in-chief, but I, I work alongside the yeah. team. I'm not, you know, directing directing the team, I mm. think. I, I don't think of it in that way. And I think a lot of places are very... Um, sometimes direction is needed, of course, yes, But I think a lot of places operate in a very hierarchical way, in a very like top down way. And I don't think we would ever be that place because it's all about kind of community and collective. Mm. So I I feel like, you know, even though that's my title, it's work that we all do together. It's teamwork that we all do together. So, yeah. (laughs) That's really nice. There was an article you wrote last year Mm. on why the recent deaths of ESEA women in the UK feel so close to home about the disappearances and deaths of Mi Kwan Chong and Louise Cam, the lack of attention paid in the media and how it sits along the grief and pain of the last year of for ESEA communities in the UK. So can you tell me a bit about like your, your experience writing that article and like why you think there's been such a lack of attention paid? I think for me, those incidents were sort of really close together. I think it seemed like it was in very quick succession. And then there was the awful case of just after another really sad, awful case that happened just after that piece was published of a, a Filipino mother who was killed in her home, I believe. 
And there was like no reporting. I just thought it was mad that there was no reporting about mm-hmm. it anywhere. With me, Quen Chong, who was Malaysia, who was Malaysian, she was the same age as my mother, I think. I just remember seeing the photo in like local news. And don't get me wrong, local news is amazing. But, you know, she had been, she had disappeared for several days. Yeah, it was really disturbing. Before her body was found in the west of the country and she lived in London. Yeah. And I just thought, you know, I just was really frustrated and really, you know, angry that that more wasn't done. And I didn't see, I hadn't seen her name circulating really anywhere on social media beyond EC communities. And it was just really frustrating. Now, I don't think that sort of my predecessor, Charlie Brinkhurst-Calf, wrote a brilliant article for Galdem about why we shouldn't be making, like, missing people a comparative sport. So often there's a the thing of, well, you know, this, like, white person is missing. Yeah. Like, why don't you care about this black person? And I think that's... that. I, I agree, I think that's unhelpful. Mm. But I just couldn't help notice that in this case that there was just such low coverage or awareness... And the frustration for that, I think, is I'm directing it at traditional mainstream media and also, you know, authorities in the state for not doing enough to protect and value EC lives. That's why I see kind of Gaudem's role as redressing that and, you know, having that. And and that piece was really important to me that we had some really lovely artwork to go with that because... um, I felt like those women had not been paid tribute to or remembered in any meaningful way. And if we could do that, even just through celebrating them as they lived, as they were, then that's something, you know. It just feels to me that the mainstream media is like, we see one perspective Mm. and from one gaze, Mm -hmm. you know? And yeah, I think that's probably why we were not seeing it because it's not of importance because it's some someone that doesn't look like them and it doesn't remind them of their mother or their Mm. grandmother and that's so important yeah and I think when at that time as well you know thinking about the context of of anti-Asian like hate you know my my mum had suffered you know like you know racial abuse linked to like stay away from me Mm. you've got covid Mm. vibe um I know so many other people are in in who had elders in their families who were scared of the same thing or had had the same thing. And it's heartbreaking. I definitely think that was, you know, part of it for me. It's like the sense of frustration and injustice. And I think, you know, talking about perspectives in the media as well, I think so much about, we're coming up to the one year anniversary now, but the um, Atlanta shootings and the way in which those women were spoken about, I just thought was disgusting. Yeah the kind of assumption that because they worked in a massage parlour and they were of East Asian descent that they were sex workers. And, of course, sex work is work. We should be removing that stigma around it. But I think the kind of way in which they were spoken about literally, like, the day after and and the way in which, you know, attempts to justify the murderer's (laughs) behaviour by saying that he had a sex addiction or something, you know, just the way, just really magnified the way in which... Asian women are so often fetishized yeah. and assumptions Objectif- made yeah. and objectified. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry to have brought the mood no. down. Oh my god! No, sorry I'm about to bring it down further. Okay. <laughs> That's why I made okay. that noise. Um, <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. I did want to just like highlight a couple of um, really important articles. I feel like people should check out. Like these aren't really questions. I just wanted to mention it. 
there was one written by Xin Qianwang. Mm-hmm. Um, China's government is targeting sissy with quotations yeah. men with devastating consequences and I found that a really interesting read um, another article written by June Bellabono mm. again in quotations she men lady boys and trans- transvestites uncovering trans southeast asian archives mm-hmm. where she speaks on the intersection of trans womanhood mm-hmm. and southeast Asian identity is one for decades that have been hypersexualized, fetishized, and ridiculed by the white gaze. So I just wanted to mention those two articles that came out earlier this year that I just wanted to this, flag yeah. to people to check out on Galdem. You're so on the ball. Those are so recent. Yeah. This is the, the quote sissy men one, the Chinese masculinity one just came out this week. Yes. Um, but I love, I just a quick note about those yes, two. Yes, please. I, I love both of those two, I think, because they're so... They're very different, but I think they are what a Galdem story should be. Mm. Um, our role is to, is to share those underrepresented and underreported stories and perspectives, and especially you know you know with June, whose piece is like a kind of first person piece about the experience of seeing these archives and seeing the ways in which trans elders had been you know, from previous generations had been referred to by the British press and the echoes of that today. I think that's really powerful. I think that's so powerful. Uh, Xin Tian, was, who did the piece on Chinese masculinity, she spoke to so many people for that. And and I think understanding those perspectives and, and, and showing our readers something new, I think is, is it's just so powerful. And I think it's also, you know, something that's been infused from Galdem's mission from the start is that so often black people, people of colour from marginalised genders are spoken for mm. um, and about yeah. by others. I'm just really proud of, of what the team has done over the last six years to get us to a place where, you know, we have always been by us, for us. Yeah. But that, I think that's what makes it so special. Yeah. And I think that's why it just draws people who are just wanting to hear other people's stories from lived experience and through those eyes. Because yeah. I don't care what someone who's never experienced mm. racism talks about racism about mm-hmm. like to me okay I don't want to say I don't care but to me it doesn't resonate the same mm-hmm. again I keep saying perspective but <laughs> it's so it's so important um and there and Galdem have two podcasts we do I believe yes, uh, reclaimed do. and rewritten is a podcast digging the horrific story of Oklahoma's Tulsa massacre in 1921 which is hosted by Clarkisha Kent mm-hmm. And Growing Up with Galdem, which covers a broad um, number of topics such as power of music, heartbreak, enjoying life while we're living it, love, and so much more. And it was also nominated for Podcast of the Year. It was. I was going to do the plug, but I don't have to because you're doing it. I'm so sorry. No, no, you do it. You carry on, please. Uh, Visionary Honours. That's the... Yes, yes. Um, Yeah, massive, you know, our wonderful hosts, Nyella, who's also our life editor, and Natty. I voted. Oh, did you? Oh, (laughs) amazing. Yes, they are are brilliant and and hosting Growing Up With Galdem every week um, with, you know, a different guest every week revisiting their younger selves. Um, It's just so beautiful and wholesome. And I think, um, you know, that's part of it. You know, Reclaimed and Rewritten is very different. It's... It's very, it's, it's, it's heavy and it's in-depth and it contains really traumatic themes and revisiting really painful histories. And I think, you know, it's just thinking about different parts of what we do at Galdem. Of course, touching on, you know, holding institutional injustice, power and oppression to account is so important. 
but also so is you know joy mm. and also the th- way that those two things can interlink sometimes yeah. um you know i think thinking about us talking about being whole you know our, our lives are whole it's not always one thing or another yeah but yes growing up with galdem please vote for us yes <laughs> everyone vote um yeah, I mean, they. I think it's, it's already won a couple of awards oh, as well. Goals. So. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, really, really proud of, of, of the team and the hard work that goes into that. I wanted to touch briefly on Society of Editors. They are an organisation representing British newspaper editors. Well, they and say they do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, but I think there was, it was in the news a little bit mm. um, about them putting out a statement after the Oprah interview yeah. that Prince Harry and Meghan did, yeah. they issued um, a statement strongly denying yeah. Prince Harry's claim that there was bigotry in parts of the British, British press. Sorry, I just think that's hilarious because it's yeah. like, what are you talking about? And in the backlash of that, hundreds of British journalists signed an open letter insisting racism was prevalent. <laughs> yes, in- it exists. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and you signed yes. this as well? Yes, yeah, us, and I think all of all of our team did. I think, um, I mean, it's just laughable, isn't it, really? I think it just shows who feels empowered to say that and who feels empowered to deny that. I think there was, you know, there's also the the government commissioned report that said that institutional racism, racism doesn't exist in Britain today as well. <laughs> it said? Um, oh yeah. my God, it's so offensive. Yeah, and I think, you know, it, it's just, it, it, it's just tone deaf and, and just completely you know out of touch and all the all the rest of it i think um yeah i just i don't have much more to say but big up eleanor mills she was a member but she resigned after they made this statement so big up (laughs) miss mills yeah i think also as well you know we have an advisory well an editorial advisory board at gaudem there's uh joseph harker who um is at the guardian is part of that and he's been like you know, really vocal on these issues and is has been, you know, working in the British media for a really long time and talking about this for a really long mm. time. So I think, you know, of course it's super it's super ridiculous and painful f- for us, you know, at new publications to be hearing this. But I also think about what journalists of colour who are who have been working in the media for a long time must also think, like, who have had to deal with horrific situations too. Oh. But I also think that sort of thing lends itself to the reason why part of the reason why Galdem is important because that's not representative no. of us and our experience the way to kind of put that out there is to build what we've built and and you know I really believe in like the power of independent news mm. local and regional newsrooms are so important I mean look at Hong Kong I think you know, it's a very different situation but somewhere like Hong Kong Free Press has been doing like some of the best reporting and I think you know if you want to get to the heart of the story, it's got to be told by the people who are yeah. experiencing it. And we've seen so much with like traditional media. Don't be railing against the mainstream media <laughs> all the time. Fuck off. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But I think we've seen so much. You know, there's such a lack of trust now from mm. the public in in media. And I think even thinking about like the parties thing with yeah. Boris Johnson. I can't. And yes, that's been broken by some great journalists. And that, that story is out there because of the work of great journalists. But there were definitely other journalists that knew this yeah. would happen at the time, yeah. you know. And I think people are—I you know, think people are getting sick of that now. That kind of statement from society is just laughable. It just shows how sort of out of touch 
They are everything that was said in that open letter that we signed, I think, says it better than I can. <laughs> I did want to ask you, um, you report on such very important but heavy topics. Mm. So what do you do to have fun? <laughs> like, oh my God, what do I do to have fun? What's you... fun? No, I'm joking. Yeah. Oh <laughs> I'm God. joking, I'm joking. Like what do you do to switch off, to, switch to relax? Off. It sounds so like, you know, something you have on a meditation or something but just being in the moment and like absorbing what's going on I think social media has been great and I think Instagram has been great for me to connect with so many people like so yeah yeah. (laughs) um and you know all the amazing people in our community that I didn't know at all like two years ago but I also think like, you know, a space like Twitter, I find really hard to navigate because it, there's just so much noise all the yeah. time. And I think making sure that you have time away, well, like for me, making sure that I have time away from that is really important. Yeah. I think there's so much pressure to be seen to be like speaking on every issue and giving an opinion on everything. And sometimes you don't always need to. And I'm just telling myself that. Sometimes yeah. I don't always I don't always need to. Like, I know what I feel about things. I know what I'm doing to try and change things and try and support others and support people to tell their stories. I don't need to say it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I think just making sure I have a bit of division between yeah. online and offline yeah. is so important. Yeah, yeah, I just need, like, a weekend where I can just watch trash TV. Oh, yeah. Hundred percent. I can't like just finish I, watching. Not every day race, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. You know, we're just so much more than that. You know, sometimes I just want to fucking watch season three of Too Hot to Handle, which is what I finished Amazing. this week. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just and just you know, stalk these people and see like if they're still together now. Yeah. You know, <laughs> even though it's nothing to do with me, but just yeah, have a bit of an escapism and and I think just not 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 taking myself too seriously. Yeah, I mean, there's a great amount of responsibility. And I know that Gaudem means so much to so many. It's meant so much to me over the last six years. Yeah, it's just it's just an honour to be back and just, just think of think of it as part of me. Yeah. Not, yeah, not all of me. And it's also all teamwork. It's not all just me. <laughs> Thank you yeah. so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Sorry for talking too much. Oh my god, no, <laughs> this is a dream. Did you want to drop your socials so people can find you? Drop the socials after yes. I've been like <laughs> socials stress me out. Um the socials are at C and says on any and everything. Thank you. Thank so- you so much, Annie. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to Su Yin. I'll be back next week for the final episode of this season. So make sure you subscribe, follow, and rate this show to keep posted on new episodes, bonus episodes, and the third season. You can also get in touch with me at Don't Call Me Exotic Pod and at OAnnieO on Instagram. You can also send me an email at Don't Call Me Exotic Pod at gmail.com. Oh, and make sure you don't call people exotic. Bye!